You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway family. My name is Melanie Lloyd, and I serve in the care and counseling ministry. I will be reading Genesis 26, 23 through 25 today. Please open your Bibles with me. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. For my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you this week. Hope you are doing well. If you're a guest among us, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway. Glad you're with us. As we continue our study in the book of Genesis, Genesis 26, I want to start with a confession. One of the things that I have come to begrudgingly accept in my life is that no matter how hard I have tried, no matter my manifestos that I have created, the public declarations I have sworn in covenant, the truth is, is I am becoming more and more like my parents every single day, and I loathe it. You know how it goes, right? We begin in life by swearing, never. I'll never be like them. That thing that she does, nope, never going to do it. That thing that he always said, nope, never going to say it. And then one day it starts happening. You know it? You begin to feel it. It starts with little tremors um, called mannerisms. You figure out, oh gosh, we kind of write the same. Oh, we, we have the same laugh. Oh, that's weird. Um, you know, we, we kind of look alike. That's getting a little crazier. Uh, and then it moves to sayings. All of a sudden you start saying things that you swore you would never say. Then you start doing it. It's like the other day, somebody asked me how I'm doing. I said, I'm fair to Midland. I don't even know what that means. My mom said it my entire life. It's a Texas saying, but I still don't know what it means, but I said it and I was like, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden it's like, it's on. And so all these things, we start saying them and then the coup de gras, man, is when the behaviors start rolling in. I start saving Amazon boxes. <laughs> I have no need to save all of those, but my mom does. I start repeating stories to the same people that I've already told them to. Maybe it's less about your parents, more just about getting old, whatever it is. But you start checking out on contemporary modern music. Um, and maybe the biggest of all is when you just exit technology. When that day comes, then you know you've become like your parents. I've said it before. I can walk into my mom's house today and I know exactly what year she quit. 1985. So all the technology is right there. You need a good beta VHS uh, player. You got it. It's right there. We all do it. Some of it's genetic passed down. Some of it is that which has been taught to us, that has been catechized into us. But certainly more of it is caught than is taught. We just pick it up. We just pick up the habits, even when we say we wouldn't. And then we reproduce it like a factory line down into the next generation. And that trend that we all have, that is exactly what is on display here in Genesis chapter 26 this week. 
when we look at the life of Isaac as mirrored in the life of his father, Abraham. And the breakdown of Genesis is very interesting. The story, uh, Abraham, the patriarch, 12 chapters, that brother gets coverage in Genesis. Jacob gets 12 chapters of coverage in Genesis. Joseph gets about 12 chapters of coverage, overlapping chapters where they are kind of the forefront of it. Isaac, whom we're gonna look at today, one chapter, one chapter. He's in the background of a couple others, but only in one chapter, chapter 26, is he in the forefront. And ironically, he lived the longest out of all the patriarchs, yet we know the least about him. We only know a few things about him. We know he lived in the same place most of his life. We know that he was married to only one woman. He was faithful to one woman his whole life, unlike the other patriarchs. We know that he loved a good bowl of soup. Um, we're going to see that. And, uh, and we know that Hebrews 11 tells us he made it to the hall of faith. But other than that, we don't know much about him. That's why theologians call him the pale patriarch, because he's so bland in comparison to all the details that we learn about uh, the other patriarchs. But what is recorded for us in chapter 26 is telling us enough about him. It's going to give us enough about not only how he lived, but most importantly, it's going to show us the continued invincibility of the promise of God that is demonstrated towards him in his line, just as it was with his dad. And what you essentially have here, it's almost as if Moses puts together this one-hour documentary on Isaac's life, you're going to get four parts. It's a four-part documentary, and you're going to see them here. It's not in the order of his life, and we've already seen that he had kids. Well, now we're not even going to see the kids uh, until the end of this chapter. Uh, it's Moses selecting parts of his life to kind of summarize the major themes. But what we're going to see as we read through each of these parts of this documentary is that every one of them, we're going to go, man, where have I seen that before? I'm pretty sure I've seen this before somewhere. Oh yeah, with his dad. The whole theme of this chapter is like father, like son. And um, let's look at the first part here of this four-part documentary. Part one is you're gonna see clearly the promise of God and the obedience that follows, just as with Abraham, now with Isaac. You see this starting in verse one of chapter 26. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all of these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my, Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. And so Isaac settled and Gerar. And so here's Isaac and Rebekah sojourning down in what's known as the southern Negev, the, the lower part of the desert of Israel, southern part of Israel. Uh, again, they don't, this is earlier in their life that we're getting a snapshot on. They don't have kids as of yet, most likely in this scene. And 
famine hits the land. And we go, we're meant to see, that's the opening line of this narrative. We're meant to go, where have we seen that before? Famine hit the land. Oh yeah, it happened about a hundred years earlier in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham arrived in this same land. And famine hits Abraham. And so Abraham's natural instinctive response was to hook him out of Canaan and get down to Egypt to avoid the famine and to not stay in the land where God had told him to stay. And so like his father, Isaac's natural instinct is the same. Well, famine has hit this land. I'm gonna hook him down to Egypt to get out of here. But God steps in and God says no. And God doubles down on his blessing. Same blessing, the same covenantal blessing that God gives Abraham with those three major components, land, seed, and blessing. Land, I'm gonna give all your descendants this land, not the other lands, this land is going to be theirs. I'm gonna give it to them. Seed, your offspring, you're gonna have offspring that are gonna outnumber the stars. There's gonna be so many that comes through a family that doesn't as of yet have any kids. But most importantly, through that offspring is one singular offspring that will come in whom all the earth will be blessed the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna bless you along the way, not because of anything that you have done, but because I am that committed to my promise. And I will ensure that come hell or high water, this promise will be fulfilled through your line. So I want you to stay right here and trust me and not go down to Egypt. And so what do we see? Is he obeys. He obeys. He stays there in Gerar. And verse five is so key because God reinforces that with that promise, Abraham heard that same promise. And ultimately, when you look at the whole scheme of Abraham's life, even though on a line graph, we got a lot of dips of faith and mistakes and, and manipulation in there. The whole arc though is pointing to a man of faith who believed God and who obeyed. And implicit in verse five is almost the question you can hear being hinted at of God. Isaac, will you do like your father did? Will you obey me? Don't hook him like he did originally, but do like he did in the long run and follow me right now. And so he does, he stays in Gerar. Now what we're intended to see here in chapter one of Isaac's story is of like father, like son, is that the enduring promise of God is now continuing through Isaac. Not through Ishmael, not through any other sons, but through Isaac. And, uh, and that, that promise of redemption is coming through him and Isaac is obeying right out of the gate. To the original readers who are reading this, the original Israelites who are standing on the, the banks of the Jordan had just come out of the Exodus, all the wilderness years, and they're about to enter into the promised land. What this, this section of, of Isaac's life would reinforce for them is that you don't have to turn back to Egypt when things get hard. And remember, that is exactly what their temptation was all through the wilderness years. If only we were back in Egypt. And God's going, no, no, I've got a promised land for you. Trust me, go this way. And so they would read this and reinforce that idea of don't run to Egypt when things get hard and thus sell out the promise of God. Trust me, I'm gonna take care of you, even in the midst of these threats. And I think the same is true for us. There's great encouragement here for us that we ourselves would not turn to our own proverbial Egypts, whatever they may be when things get difficult, but instead we would trust God's purposes in it 
and we would know that he has not forsaken us. He will go with us. He will bless us in due time if we obey and trust him. So that's part one. Promise of God and the obedience of Isaac that is now carried on from father to son. But like many other things with our own parents, not only do we adopt the good things, we oftentimes bring with the negative things as well. And so in part two of this documentary, we get lies and manipulation. That we get to see the negative things that have been handed down. Starting in verse seven, as he then settles in Gerar in verse seven, When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Uh Uh-oh, seen this one before. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out of a window. He saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So just when it seems like Isaac is off to a good start, the old lie and tell him you're my sister gig starts up again, right? And they're they're settling in Gerar here. Um, They're obeying God, but they've got to go to the king of this area to sojourn here in the midst of the famine, so gets to know this Abimelech. Now, we've seen an Abimelech before, haven't we? Abraham, when he came to this very place, Gerar, he goes and encounters Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, it could be, some would argue, the same Abimelech, but we know a lot, about 100 years have passed, a lot of times passed, so more than likely this is a different one because we know the term Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. It's a title, the title of a ruler over this area that any king of the Philistines may have carried that particular title in this area. And so he goes to this king and tells him the lie. This is my sister. Well, he feared just like his father. He feared his own life that if, if, if I'm, they find out I'm her husband and they want her, then they'll kill me to get her. But if they find out I'm her brother, then they'll spare my life. It's all out of self-preservation here. But Somewhere down the road, after this lie has been put in motion, they're hanging around near Abimelech's place. Abimelech looks out the window and he sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah. Now, you and I would look at that in English translation. We go, oh, laughing, ha-ha, joking. How did he figure that out? But in the Hebrew, the word for laughter here can be translated, and we've seen the theme of laughter all through Genesis, but that can be translated multiple ways. Yes, joking. It can also be translated caressing. It can be translated sporting we would call it flirting. And so this is one of those Disney laughter scenes. Oh, you, oh no, you. And everybody's just giggling together and laughing. You ain't doing that with your sister. This is a romantic flirt and Abimelech knows it. So the gig's up and he pulls him in and begins to rebuke him. And he go, where have we seen this before? We've not only seen this once, we've seen this twice with Abraham. Abraham. 
In chapter 12, when Abraham goes into Egypt, he lies to Pharaoh, says Sarah is his sister. And then God has to reveal it to preserve this whole thing and spare their life and, and the gigs up there. And then he does it again in chapter 20. In this same place, Abraham goes to Gerar, lies to the king of Bimelech at that time, says she's my sister, has to get revealed, and this whole thing. And we find out in chapter 20 that this wasn't just a couple one-offs with Abraham. We find out in chapter 20, this was Abraham and Sarah's M.O., that whenever they went to a new territory, this was the lie that they had prepared going into the place. And more than likely, it was Abraham telling his wife, hey, you're going to lie for me so that they're not going to kill me. And so they went into the, this, this place doing these lies. And with each of Abraham's lies, the same thing happens is you have this ironic story of an unrighteous pagan king having to hold to account the so-called righteous follower of God. It's an interesting juxtaposition. And for Isaac, growing up, he's either heard the stories about this or no doubt he witnessed them. For Isaac, this was something that was probably more caught than taught from his dad. He learned somewhere along the way by observing his parents that whenever they faced fear, the way that they dealt with it is they resorted to human manipulation in this setting rather than trusting in the promise of God, rather than taking God at his word through divine revelation of promise, they resorted to human reasoning to work their way out of it. I think for the original readers who are reading this, this part of Isaac's life was reinforcing to them that when they are faced with fear and overwhelming odds, because they would be as they entered into Canaan, that they did not have to resort to human manipulation as a means of self-preservation, but rather they could trust in their God to protect them and to provide for them as he promised. And this is the truth. I mean, it's the reason why God doesn't just give one, three stories. Moses records in here three stories of this same lie. I think no doubt to reinforce those original readers, you don't have to do that. And I think the same is true with us. Do you know the most repeated command in all of the Bible? Do not fear. Do not fear. When we find ourselves hemmed in by threats all around us, when we feel this, the deck is stacked against us, our first resort should not be towards human manipulation and lies in order to bring about self-preservation from our fears, but rather to know that our sovereign Lord who has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has got us. He will not forsake us. He will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly. And instead, what we can do, we can confess in those moments of fear the same that King David confessed. Interestingly enough, 500 years later, after this incident, King David is in the same place, just 20 miles up the road, and he has the threat of the Philistine king breathing down him wanting to take his life. And you know what he does? Rather than resorting to human manipulation, lies and cover-ups, he says this in Psalm 56, verse three and four, when I am afraid, 
I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid, for what can flesh do to me? And so this second part of this Isaac documentary is that we don't have to resort to human manipulation and lies. We can trust in the promise of God when we're afraid, knowing he'll walk with us, knowing he'll take care of us. Part three that we see, like father, like son, handed down, is over the area of conflict and peacemaking. Conflict and peacemaking. We see this, it's a bit longer section, starting in verse 12. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Now, who else do we know that went into a famine, totally broke, and came out crazy wealthy in the midst of a famine in a way that only the hand of God could have done it? It's Isaac's dad, Abraham. Chapter 12 goes into that same famine and comes out with an abundance of wealth. But with that blessing comes challenges. You see in verse 14, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. And so Moses lets us know in verse 15, now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that Isaac's father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. So they had become envious, the Philistines did, in Abraham's day. They saw the, this man go through a famine and come out wealthy, and they got envious, and so they went and they buried all the wells he dug. Wells were important deals because when you found a spring, you found living water, and when you find living water, you find life. And Abraham was prospering in the midst of all these challenges and the Philistines didn't like it and they buried his wells out of envy. And now we're told here, the same thing is happening with Isaac, his son. The envy of Abimelech now leads to this when he says to Isaac in verse 16, go away from us. You are much mightier than we. So the question is, what does Isaac do when faced with these threats? This is the land God promised, told him to stay here. And now he's got a king saying, get out of here. Get out of here, pack up and get out of this area. You're becoming stronger than we are. We're jealous of that. We're not gonna have it. Does he retaliate? Does he push back on Abimelech? Does he demand entitlement and go, do you know who you're talking to? God's already told me this is my land. Does he resort to human manipulation again in this moment? No, he's now learned that lesson just like Abraham had done. And he says instead in verse 17, notice what he does. Isaac departs from there and he camps in the nearby valley of Gerar and he settles there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given those wells. So he moves on from Gerar. He goes just outside to the valley. 
And he finds those old wells that Abraham's crew had dug up a hundred years ago and he redigs them and he, he renames them just like his father had done as a sign of ownership and stewardship in the land. And then even more threats come when this happens. You see this in verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen saying that water's ours. You can't have those wells. And it's interesting here in this moment, where have we seen this before? Again, Genesis chapter 13, Abraham, remember when he was settling in the area, his herdsmen quarreled with Lot's herdsmen over space in the land and had tension there and conflict. Like father, like son, these same things are happening here. But in verse 20, what he does, now that he's squabbing over this well, he names that well Asik, which basically means contention in Hebrew, because they contended with him. And he moves on. Verse 21, they dug another well. And then they quarreled over that well also. So he named that one Sitna, which means enmity. He's giving them bitter names. And so he moves on a third time and he he goes and he digs another well. And this time they did not quarrel over it. So he names that well Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means room or open spaces. And so, just like his father, wherever Isaac goes, no matter the physical circumstances, God just keeps blessing him. Now, please understand, this is not some prosperity gospel here. This is not follow Jesus Christ and he'll make you wealthy. He'll just build up all your resources. No, some, for some people it would be quite the opposite. Struggle, uh, struggle and challenges are gonna come. It's not what we're talking about. This is a unique promise to a unique person for a unique purpose at a unique time. But with this blessing that comes from the hand of God to Isaac also comes threats. People who seemingly want to steal the promise of God out from underneath him. But I want you to see in that section we just read, his response to those threats, they're just like we saw Abraham's response in chapter 13. As his faith and his trust grows in God, Isaac is no longer worried about trying to control his destiny through manipulation. He knows that God is now in control and when, when and how that land will be handed over, that's God's bidding. But God has promised it. All he's concerned about now is just doing the right thing. And like his dad, Isaac is not a man of the flesh here. He's a man of faith. And so he's so free in his trust and his confidence in the promise of God that he's willing to lay down those wells and give them to God. They want those wells, then I'm not gonna fight over them anymore. I'm gonna move on, I'm gonna dig another one. They want that one, they can have that one. I'll move on, I'll do another one. Isaac knows that only through God can he gain by losing and he can lay down those rights. That frees him up. The promise of God, I want you to see this. The promise of God is so sure to Isaac it frees him up to not have to defend. He can lay those things down and entrust them with God. Now we'll come back to verse 23 in just a moment. That's the the final part in this story. But I want you to notice how this peacemaking process plays out 
in verse 26. Eventually, he's going to land in Beersheba. That's where he sets up shop. And in verse 26, Abimelech comes to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And again, remember, these are titles. Abimelech, Abimelech, my father is king. Phicol means great. It's, a, it's not probably the same Phicol that we saw 100 years earlier. This is a military commander title, Phicol. And they come and they meet with Isaac. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to meet me? Seeing that you hate me and you've sent me away from you. And they said, well, we see plainly now that the, the Lord has been with you. And so we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly true on Abimelech's part there, but nonetheless, they're looking for it, uh, a peace here. And they says, you are blessed of the Lord. So they made them a feast and they ate and they drank because that's what you do in covenants. You have covenant meals. It's the reason why we have communion as we remember the covenant that Jesus Christ has made with us through his blood. We do that over a meal that we celebrate. And so they have this meal together. And then the next morning, verse 31, they rose early, they exchanged their oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day, That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And he called that well Shiva. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And so, I don't know if you caught that, but as Isaac is moving around, and letting go of these wells and laying them down and seeking peace and blessing as he is secure in the promise of God. Here comes Abimelech, wants to now, has taken note of God's blessing on him, recognizes how great they are, and they're like, hey, let's just, let's just sign a pact here. Let's sign a military treaty, a peace treaty, and let's call this good. And on the day that is signed, that very day, what does God provide for Isaac's family? A well with living water. And so he names that well Shiva, which means here, oath. Remember in Hebrew, the word for seven and the word for oath sound very similar in Hebrew. And remember back in chapter 21, Abraham made a treaty with that Abimelech in this very location over a well. And in that day, Abraham named that well Beersheba which meant seven, the well of seven, because he gave seven ewe lambs to secure this deal. And now, all these years later, Isaac makes a treaty with another Abimelech in this very same location. And a new well is discovered, almost symbolically sealing this deal. And so Isaac names or renames this well Beersheba, which in this case is the well of seven. You have the well of oath and the well of, I'm sorry, the well of oath here and the well of seven. They sound the same. Beersheba to this day is still its name. Now what the original readers were meant to see in this part of Isaac's life is that one, yes, if they trust God and they follow God, 
He's going to deliver on his promises. He's going to take care of them. He's going to provide. But as, as they trust him, threats are going to come. And when those threats come, specifically concerning the possession of land, since that was one of the specific promises God made, they didn't have to defend. They didn't have to give in to entitlement. They didn't have to try to retaliate. They could simply move on and keep digging and keep trusting the Lord. He'll do the fighting for them. That's God's business. And they can bring peace to that land. And I think in many ways, the same is true for us. God has promised us full salvation in Jesus Christ and he has delivered. He has sent his son Jesus to shed his blood on the cross so that our sins could be covered and forgiven. He has raised Jesus from the dead three days later so that those of us who put our trust in him, not in our own works, but by faith, put our trust in Jesus's works, we are made new, resurrected new. And one day Christ has promised he will return and he will give us this land. This whole earth will be renewed. It'll all be made new and we will rule and reign with him on this land forever. We don't have to worry about it. So that in the meantime, until he comes and that land is delivered, we get the unspeakable privilege as his disciples of fulfilling his mission, of keep digging wells by bringing glory to God, by making disciples of Jesus Christ, of keeping the main thing, the main thing and trusting God with the rest. Let's go and fulfill our mission. Now, what this doesn't mean is that we have to weaponize God's promise because he's already promised to give us this earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. We're going to inherit this earth one day. But we don't have to weaponize that promise right now to turn this into some nationalistic entitlement of fighting and contending with our enemies like the crusades of old, but rather we can lay down our rights. We can trust God to provide at his own timing and we can stay focused on the higher mission of evangelizing and making disciples. Now to some people that sounds like weakness and to be fair, what I'm not saying here is that there is never a time to take a stand and defend rights. Oh, there is. And there are many places in scripture that show that. That is another sermon for another day. But for right here, what is being described here in Isaac's laying down and Abraham before him laying down these rights? It's not weakness. The Bible would call it meekness. And these are different. Jesus was described as meek when he went to the cross. That didn't mean he was weak. It's the same term that's used of a bridle put on a horse. Something that's so strong and powerful that is merely now brought under purposeful restraint for a greater purpose. And that, by the way, that's a sign of true freedom. True freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. No, true freedom is being so free in Christ, so secure in his promises of what he said he's going to deliver that you're now free to do as you should do, not as you want to do. No matter the cost, because you know the greater reward is coming. And so I can die to myself and I can lay down for the sake of my fellow brother, sister, or citizen that's around us for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now that is part three. Conflict, peacemaking, like father, like son. The final part, part four, we go back Look at verse 23. Verse 23 is when Isaac finally settles in Beersheba. He moves from Gerar to the Valley of Gerar and then down to Beersheba. That's where he sets up camp for the rest of his time. 
And in verse 24, the Lord appeared to him there the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And notice Isaac's response. Verse 25. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug that well. So God doubles down on the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, the same covenant, that same promise. It's now going through the line of Isaac, that is for you. And what is his response to that promise? It is to build an altar and worship Yahweh. Where have we seen this before? Give you the answer. Five times in Abraham's life we saw this. In chapter 12, when he arrives in Shechem, he builds an altar against all the other pagan altars that were around him. He builds an altar to Yahweh, the one true God, and he worships him. The end of very next verse in chapter 12, he builds a second altar when he gets between Bethel and Ai and he builds another altar and he worships God. When he gets back from Egypt, he returns in chapter 13 to that same place and he rebuilds that same altar and he worships Yahweh. And also in chapter 13, he builds another altar in Mamre there in Hebron and he worships Yahweh. And maybe the most significant altar of all is in chapter 22 when he builds the altar that he lays his own son down on. And God provides a substitute, a ram who dies in his place. And he worships Yahweh with his son there together. This was a theme all throughout Abraham's life. Wherever he went, no matter how pagan the land was, he erected altars of worship to Yahweh. There is no doubt that from a young age, Isaac grew up watching his mom and dad and catching their unceasing worship of God. It was modeled by his parents, like father, like son. For the original readers standing on the banks of the Jordan, about to go into the promised land, that very land filled with pagan altars, God calls his people to go tear down those altars and in their place, re-erect new ones in worship to Yahweh alone. The same is true with us. One of the true marks of a Christian is one who has experienced the continued faithfulness of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness in their life. And when they've tasted that, you cannot help see but an ongoing pattern of thanksgiving and worship. The most worshipful people, the most thankful people around you are the ones who know what it's like to be far from God, to deserve alienation from God for all eternity and yet have been brought near because of the love of God that has been poured out through Jesus Christ to them. And if you study those people's lives, what you will see as you trace their journey is a whole series of altars that have been erected in worship of the living God. In their highest of moments, whether it's on the mountaintops of life, there's gonna be altars whether it's the salvation that they've received in Jesus Christ, when God provided a job or financial blessing in a season where they didn't know where it was gonna come from, uh, whether it is marriage, a provision of a spouse or children that have been born, there are altars there worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. And those same people 
When you look at the valleys of their life, the diagnosis of cancer, the painful loss of a family member, the loss of a job or a broken relationship, whatever pain and hardship may come, you'll find that it's there that they sense the nearness of the Lord and the faithfulness of God to walk with them in the valley of the shadow of death. And even there, you will find altars of worship and thanksgiving. Wherever we go, we are meant to be thankful worshipers of the God who not only promises, but provides. So do you see the four selected highlights or reels that Moses puts forth to show the same patterns and promises with Abraham are the same ones that carry on down with Isaac as well. Both the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's all there but the faithfulness of God that continues on throughout. Before we close, I want you to notice one last little cryptic statement. Seems odd. Look at the last two verses of this chapter. Verse 34 and 35. We now catch up to real time. And the camera zooms in here on Isaac's kids. What does father like son look like now? First, Esau. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berahi, the Hittite, to be his wife. And then he took Basemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Seems like a weird way to end the chapter right here. But like many other places that we've seen in Genesis already, these two verses, they serve as a transition or a pivot point. Moving from the line of Isaac now, from Abraham to Isaac now to the line of Jacob that will continue forth in the chapters ahead. And it's answering that age-old question that we've been asking since chapter three, whose line will this serpent crusher come through? This deliverer who will undo all that Satan has done when God promised that through the line of Eve will come this descendant in whom all the nations will be blessed. And we've been tracing those lines and we've gotten now to Abraham and now we're going down to Isaac. And the question is, who will it come through next? These two verses are answering that question. First of all, the emphatic answer, the explicit one that's here is it's not going to come through Esau. His will be a line of bitterness. He is going to cause great pain to his parents. He'll become polygamous. He will marry outside of not only his family, but his faith. He will be marked by rebellion and opposition, and even his very descendants will be the enemies of God's people. No, it is not like father, like son. It is totally different. But implicit within this is the truth that the promise will continue, not through Esau, but through Jacob. That's the line of blessing. It is through his line that will continue on that eventually the Messiah will come. Jesus Christ, and in the story of like father, like son, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, when he shows up, will be the exact imprint of his father in every way. Perfectly righteous, perfectly good and perfectly obedient 
all the way to the end, even through death on a cross that provides us our redemption and through his resurrection gives us new life. And as a result of the resurrected life that we've received in Jesus Christ, we now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit whom we're told, even in Romans 8, whose purpose now is to make us like our new father, our heavenly father. No matter what kind of parents that you have had, all of us have parents, have something that we might need to, that we want to adopt from them. We have some things about our parents that we may need to adapt just a little bit. And we have things about our parents that we honestly will abhor and reject. But no matter what kind of parents you've had, The promise is this, if you are in Jesus Christ, then you have a perfect father who loves you and who's moved heaven and earth to bring you into a relationship with him. And you can trust him and you can follow him and you can know that he will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly in him. He has secured the ends for you and he will walk with you through the means so you can trust him. And so I'll close with this, Paul's words to the Ephesians church in Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unceasing promise towards us in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that promise is no matter what kind of parents we've had and truthfully, if left to our own selves, if left to our own flesh, we have no hope of even being remotely even better than our own parents. But instead, we'll live live lives of destruction if given to our own senses and our own flesh. But praise be to you, O God, that through Jesus Christ, you have brought about adoption and you have made us your sons and daughters. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be made new. We can follow our heavenly father and trust you all the way, knowing that you who promise will be faithful to provide. So help us to walk obediently to you as imitators of you. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.